Sometime in the year 1979, how many of you were around then? I'm just seeing who's old in the place. All right. That's me too. I'm there. All right. Sometime in 1979, a student studying psychophysics. I didn't know that was a thing, but. And a computer programmer got together and they, for the first time, created something that allowed people to see a 3D image without any special equipment. It was black and white. It was very simple. It was not something complicated at all. But they had accomplished something. He wrote a thesis statement about it. It was celebrated in the scientific community. In 1991, another computer programmer and an artist did something with that and created for the first time a color image. Now, these are called autostereograms, and that's information none of you thought you needed before you walked in here today, right? But here's the thing about them. He he got this idea, he created it, he made it colorful, and he talked to a Japanese magic company about turning them into a book, which they did, and they titled the book, Your Eyesight Gets Better and Better in a Very Short Rate of Time. They brought it to America, and they thought, we probably need to rename it. And all God's people said, all right, you don't say amen to that, but whatever, right? Yes. And so they did. They named it Magic Eye. And 20 books later, excuse me, 30 books later, 20 million copies sold later, and 73 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list later, Magic Eye is an industry. Now, it really exploded in the mid-90s, and I had one of the books. How many of you here had one of the books or have seen them, all right? And you know the idea. How many of you have no clue about what this is? All right. So here's what it is. It's a picture like this. I think we got one. There it is. And if you stare at that long enough, and your eyes go crossed, and you begin to lose vision... A 3D image will come forth out of the picture. It literally will be 3D and it will work. Now, it may not work for you guys where you're sitting because the way that it used to have to work for me is I had to put the book literally at my nose and pull it away slowly until my eyes kind of uncrossed and unfocused and then it would be there. If you've never done this before, go. we don't have time for everybody to do it here. I know you're all staring at it. You don't have time for it all to do it here, right? Go get you a book and do it. It really is kind of mind-blowing in the moment. But if you were to peel back what was there, what you would see under this is a 3D. Anybody get that in that short amount of time? A 3D image of a shark that's actually kind of moving a little bit. It's weird, right? You know, why in the world are we talking about sharks hidden in pictures? Whenever we come to a series or a sermon on prayer, one of two things is generally the opinion of those that are listening. One is, great, time to feel guilty for six weeks. Or, yeah, I got all this. What I want to do over the next few weeks is try to do what you have to do with those pictures in order to see the fullness of the three image. Because here's the key to seeing the image in those auto stereograms. You have to get your eyes to focus not on what is there and easily seen. What's more than that, and you probably heard this as well at some point in your life. It's not just that he uses the word father. He uses 
one of the most intimate terms that you can use for father. Abba. It was the word mostly on the lips of Jewish children when talking to their fathers. Some people have said it could be translated daddy. Some people have said you could translate it best as dearest fathers. But the point is when he's teaching the disciples how to pray, he says the first step in praying is to approach God as your daddy. Now, I want you to think about to a group of people that wouldn't even begin to pronounce the name that God had given to Moses as his name. For them to imagine going to him as daddy, it would even be weird today. If I were to stand in front of you and begin my prayer and say, let us all bow our heads and close our eyes. Daddy. Right? Yeah, like y'all are looking at me like that wouldn't be weird. Y'all be elbowing each other back there. Like, what? Daddy? And I would get, I would, I know it, I know it. I just know it. I would get notes about, we're not sure about the reverence with which you are approaching God within the worship service. But that's what Jesus said we should do. We come to him. As dad, dearest father. Now, that's a term that today is even more formal than it would have been back then. It's daddy. You think, well... That's how Jesus said we should approach the apostles, but what about us? Well, here's the truth. When you look over in Galatians chapter 4, there's this amazing passage of Scripture. And it says, And when the time came to completion, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. That's us, by the way. So that we might receive adoption as sons. We are His children. And because you were sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And it says here that when he comes into our hearts, when he changes our lives, we cry from the depths of who we are. Abba, Father. We're no longer a slave, but a son. And of son, then we're also an heir. The reality of God as our daddy is significant for our understanding of what prayer is. Because we are not coming into a moment of prayer with someone that we are having to convince of our worthiness to be there. He has made us worthy by his own son's death. We are not having come into the presence of God who is holding back judgment on us. We are beloved children of the King. J.I. Packer said this about understanding God as our Father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, Everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old. Everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. He is our father, our dad. And because of that, we know three sure things. First of all, we know that we are loved. 
We know that we are forgiven and we know that we are secure. And that changes how we approach God in prayer. I read this week about a story of a missionary named Everett Fulham, who was a missionary to an indigenous tribe, remote tribe of people in Nigeria. It was so remote that the people there had never even heard the word America. They had never heard the word Africa, even though they lived in what we call the continent of Africa. They had a pagan, pre-scientific view of creation, so simplistic that when Fulham went as a missionary, he was talking about the great things that humans have done, and he mentioned that two men walked on the moon. And the old chief looked at Fulham's face up at the moon and said in a angry tone, there's nobody up there. It's not even big enough for two people to stand on. And he meant it. He had no clue about any of that. Fulham had a memorable experience that drove home to him what it meant to know God as Father in the midst of that. He baptized three people that had come to know the love of God through faith in Christ. And he describes the experience this way. He said, there were two men and one woman, and we stood on the banks of a muddy river, wet and happy. I've never seen three people more joyful. What is the best thing about this experience, I ask? And all three continue to smile in the glistening water, emphasizing the brightness of their dark-skinned faces. But only one spoke in a clear, deliberate English. Behind this universe stands one God. Not a great number of warring spirits as we have always believed, but one God. And now I know that God loves me. Everything about our prayer life is centered on the reality that we have a God who loves us. Who wants what's absolutely best for us. That is not in the business of depriving us for the sake of deprivation, but has our best interest at heart. And so when we come to him in prayer, we are having a conversation with our dad. Let me just speak just for a moment, because I know sometimes when we use the dad imagery, that for some people in this room, for some people watching online, that the dad imagery is not a sweet image for you. That perhaps a dad has abandoned you or perhaps your relationship with your dad is not great. Maybe it's even abusive or harsh. And yet we know the scripture reminds us again and again that our hearts long for an unconditional love from a father. And so I would say do not judge the God of the universe on the failings of a human representative. And that God wants to fill that need of love and forgiveness and security in your life. We are loved because we have been adopted as His sons, because He has accepted us as who we are. We are forgiven. It's interesting that God told this story of forgiveness with the prodigal son, with the picture of a father and sons. And when the son comes back, the first words he says to him are, Father, and when he accepts him into the house, it is a sign of forgiveness. And we are secure. In the ancient world, as the book of Galatians talks about adoption, in the ancient world, you could disown your own children, but you could not disown an adopted child. It was permanent. God has securely bought us. 
The first truth behind there that we need to see in order to inform our prayer life in general before we even get into some of the how-tos and the, the nuts and bolts of it is that God is our Father. The second thing we need to understand is our Father is in control. You see, there is this juxtaposition right there at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer that says, Our Father where? Where? In heaven, right? Our Father in heaven. And what it means is that our God is our Father. He is intimate with us. He is closer than a brother. He is literally our daddy. But he is also the God of all creation that is in complete control of the universe. And here's the thing. You want a God who is both loving and intimate and in complete control. Because if he was in control of everything but he didn't love us, it would be detrimental to us. That's the ancient Greek gods who played around with humans because they were in control, but they had no love for them. But if we had a God who loved us but was incapable of doing anything about it, that would be just as frustrating. We have the best of all worlds. We have a God who intimately cares and loves us and is in complete control of the universe. He is completely in control. The word we use for that is sovereign. It's amazing to see these two things side by side because we have in him alone one who is high. We have one who is mighty and one who is with us and is literally stooping to us in grace to say his love for us. We have the intimacy of the hug and the awe of the holy. This is a declaration of the glory of God. This is people falling in awe of who He is. Throughout Scripture, when anybody gets any kind of picture of who God is, they cannot stand in the presence of what they see. When you think about Moses, who says, I just need to see you, I just need to know, and God says, turn around. When you think about Isaiah confronted with the glory and the majesty of God in the temple and he falls and says woe is me when you think about in the new testament when Jesus calms the storm and the disciples say who is this man they bow at him because they cannot stand in his presence it is absolutely mind-blowing to think about the sheer power and mightiness of the God that we serve and to put alongside that that he is the God who loves us. And then we come in prayer. Yes, we're coming to our dad. But we're not coming to a dad who is incapable or is weakened in any way. We are coming to the God of the universe. There's this prayer in Second Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is in the midst of a terrible situation. In fact, he needs deliverance from enemies like yesterday. And he stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the Lord's temple before the new courtyard. And he says, and this is the time when most of us in this moment would run straight to, we need your help. But we like, we're desperate. What are you going to do, God? What's happening? And he doesn't start there. He starts with the ability that our God has. Lord God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand and no one can stand against you. That's the way you enter into the presence of God. 
Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and who gave it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? Notice there, even in this prayer, you have the friend of Abraham who is almighty God. They have lived in the land. They've built you a sanctuary in it for your name and have said, if disaster comes on us, sword or judgment, pestilence or famine, we will stand before this temple. We will stand before you for your name is in this temple and we will cry out to you because of our distress and you will hear and deliver. He says, listen, God, you are the God who told us to stand in this place because your name, your reputation, everything about you is here. And you are declaring in this place that you are almighty and all powerful. And I'm coming before you today because you said if we would stand here and if we would declare this in this place, you would come and you would deliver. Now hear God, are the Ammonites and the Moabites and the inhabitants of Mount Seir. He did not let Israel invade them when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, but Israel turned away from them and did not destroy them. Now they've come to repay us by driving us out of your possession that you gave us as an inheritance. Notice how he continues to talk about what God is. God, mighty God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this vast number that comes to fight against us. We do not know what to do, but we look to you. Here's what I want you to notice about that prayer. The request is the end. And it is based on the ability and the power and the placement of our God. And the sake of his name. You see, we serve a God that is in complete control. And we come into his presence, we come asking to be reminded of his control. Reminds us that whatever we face here and now is not out of his control. It's not in a chaotic state that can't be corralled by our God. And he is able to do whatever we ask. We also serve the God who will bring all of this to conclusion. In Revelation chapter 19, it's not going to be on the screen, just listen. Verse 11 says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written on it that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty and he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh King of Kings and Lord of Lords Jesus who taught us how to pray here is the conquering hero for the Almighty Sovereign God can you you imagine that day when the King comes to deliver his people to Almighty God our Father I don't know if you are aware of this or not, but apparently there's a coronation coming up in England here in a few days. Been some stuff on the news about that, some stuff about how some American decided not to go. I don't know. It's going to be a pretty big deal, right? How, how long has it been since they had a coronation in England? Almost 70 years. This is literally a once in a lifetime kind of event for many of us. 
Most of us in this room, or many of us in the room, have, have not seen or don't remember the previous one. And my guess is it's going to be a gala to end all galas with trumpets and horses and royal attendees. And they're having concerts and a major celebration. All for a king of England that literally has very little to no power anymore. Can you imagine what it's going to be like? At the coronation of the king of kings. We serve a God who is going to take care of absolutely everything. And the reality is, if he is able and is going to take care of everything then, he's also capable and able to take care of everything now. Last thing. Our Father's in control is the second one. God's our Father. He's in control. Here's the third one. And this is the essence of what prayer is. And this is the the behind the curtain that we have to remember. And that is this. Prayer is an exchange at its essence. The rest of those verses. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. These are the first three requests of the prayer. They're the first times we say something to God, asking something from him. But if you notice what it is in each instance is not for something for us. It is not something for me. It is something for the name and the reputation and the reality of God's kingdom on this earth. It is God make your name holy. God. Let your kingdom come. God, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Let me just, by the way, talk about there at the beginning when it says make your name holy. That doesn't mean that it's not already holy and we need to do something to make it holy. What it means is shine forth the reality of the holiness of who you are. The name there is the reputation of God, who he is, what he is about, about his fame and glory. Let that resound throughout. Yes, Lord, walking in the ways of your truth, we wait for you. For your name and your renown are the desires of our soul, is what Isaiah says. That we are declaring the glory of God. What I want you to understand in this passage is that when you come to God in prayer, the Almighty God, who is our Father, who loves us and cares for us and wants the best for us, when we come to Him, what we in essence are doing is exchanging our glory, exchanging our kingdom, exchanging our will for his. By the way, the word for prayer, and I, I don't know that, that sometimes y'all glaze over and we talk about Greek, but I want to show you something out of this. This is the word for prayer. That, that, that's the word for prayer, pros, um, and, and it's two words made up right there at pros, it breaks, and that is towards or exchange, and the ukamai is to wish or to pray. And so one understanding of that is, at its very essence, what this word means is to exchange wishes or to exchange desires. Literally, it is to interact with the Lord by switching our human wishes, desires for his wishes and desires as he imparts faith on us. It is literally coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, 
Man, this isn't about me. This isn't about my kingdom. This isn't about my will. This isn't about what I want. This isn't about my preferences. This isn't about my desires. This is about you. And so, Lord, you who are my father that loves me intimately and is in complete control of the universe. Lord, I come to you today and I say, Lord, let me live a life where your name is the center of the attention of my life. It is the glory for which I live. Let me live a life where your kingdom is what I'm concerned about advancing, where it is your kingdom that we are pushing forward, not my kingdom, not my agenda not my wants and lord let your will not my will not my desires not what i think ought to happen let your will be the will that drives me forward and lord may i participate with you in making sure that your name is made great that your kingdom is advanced and that your will is accomplished it is literally exchanging our glory for his Whatever little bit of fame or reputation or glory I have with people that are in my circle or people that are outside of my circle or people from my hometown or people from the churches I've pastored or people from acquaintances I know, whatever little amount of glory that may be there. I'm saying, Lord, that's not what my life is about and I don't want to center or focus on that. Lord, help to remove anything from me in this. I want your name to me, Gregory. Your name to be glorified. It is literally prayer is exchanging our kingdom for his. No, that's not hard. I don't have a kingdom. The reality is the kingdom here, I mean, what you envision that you are building with your life. Your family, your home, your career, your reputation, all of that. And saying, Lord, I want this to be about your kingdom and not mine. And then lastly, this is about exchanging our will for his glory and his will. The reality is that this is saying to him, before I even get to the parts, and you get there in this prayer, obviously, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts. Like There are obviously things that are personal requests, but before I get there, I want my mindset to be not what I want, but what you want. So how does that change our view of prayer? How does that bring forth that 3D picture at the back? Quite simply, one definition you can make about prayer is, That it is a conversation with our loving Father who is in complete control asking Him to let us be used by Him for His glory, His kingdom, and to accomplish His will. And then anything that comes else after that has to be in line with that. I was listening the other day to a debate, discussion, about what's happening on college campuses around our country. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but there's college is not what it was 20 years ago. First of all, it's, ex, it's much more expensive. Hypothetically speaking, as a parent of a college student, it is much more expensive than it used to be. And these were two college professors from secular universities that were not in any way that I, that I know, I can't find any way that they may be Christian or have any link to Christianity, but they said that the biggest difference that has happened on college campuses is that people come to us with their agenda and attempt to impose their agenda on us as opposed to people used to come ready to learn. 
He said it's no longer an educational place. It's a place of experience where what matters is the consumer that is paying these high prices gets everything out of their college experience that they want to get, not that they actually learn or are challenged by what is being said. And while that is definitely interesting for college, and from some of the stuff I've read, I am more excited than ever that my son is at a college that is Christ-centered. I couldn't help but hear those words and think about the current status of people's faith and involvement at church. The church has become about the experience that they want, not about coming to hear from God and to follow into what he has called us to be. And that we live in a culture that because of that, when a pandemic hits and people aren't in church for a while, they're like, you know what? The experience wasn't as good as I thought it was. I just won't be in for a while. Or now I've got some very specific things that I want to make sure are part of it. And what prayer is, at its essence, is sometimes us doing the same thing to God. God, I didn't like this, and I don't like that, and I want this, and I don't want comfortable there, and I wish this was different. Instead of coming and saying, God, this isn't about me or what I want or what I desire or what my experience is. God, this is about you. And who you are and what you want and what my experience is, is only secondary to the reality of what you're doing in my life. I want to close today by just reading a a prayer that comes out of the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 4. This is when Peter and John have been arrested and threatened. And this won't be on the screen. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. I'll be saying it. They've been threatened and they've been told, quit talking about Jesus or, or else, basically. We're going to kill you. In verse 23 of chapter 4, it says, After they released, they went to their own people and reported everything the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together to God and said... They didn't say, hey, stop them from arresting me. They didn't say, hey, God, I'd really like a little more comfort here. What they said is, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in it. There we go. Lord, you are God over all things. You said through the Holy Spirit by the mouth of our father David, you're saved. Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers assemble against the Lord and against the Messiah. For in fact, this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the ones that are threatening us now with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They tried to derail you. They tried to derail your plan to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats. They're telling us they're coming at it with the threats. And listen to what they pray. And grant that your servants may speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. God, you are in complete control. You were the one that even a few weeks ago when they killed Jesus and they thought they were destroying your plan, you raised him from the dead. And because of that, your plan is accelerating forward. Now, God, listen to our request. Most of us in that place would be like, hey, just protect us for a little while while we can get this message out. Hey, hey, could, could, you, could, you, could you tell them to knock that off? But that's not what they say. They say, Lord, they have threatened that if we speak, it will be worse for us than death. That's what they threatened. And they say, Lord, then give us the words to speak boldly. Not for our comfort, not for our sake, but for yours. Because your name and your renown are the desire of our souls.
And then do miracles, Lord. Do signs and wonders. Not for our sake, not to get us out of this, but for the sake of your name. And listen to what happens in verse 31. When they had prayed, this is how we know it was right with God. The place where they were assembled was shaken and were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God boldly. May we be a church and we may be people that our prayers are characterized by children speaking to their loving Heavenly Father who is in complete control, asking Him to let us be a part of seeing His name made great, of His kingdom advanced, and His will to be done on this earth. Let's pray together. Lord, You are God of all creation. You are Lord and Savior, majestic in all that You do, majestic in who You are. And so, Lord, we pray in this moment that You would allow us to understand Your majesty and Your glory. But, Lord, You're also our Dad. You have adopted us as your children, and because of that, we can come into this place and we can declare you are holy. And we can declare you are good and you are loving because we have a relationship with you. And Lord, you are closer than a brother. And so, Lord, we give you praise and honor for that. And we pray, Lord, that as individuals and as a church, that we would be people that would get out of the way. That we would get our conditions and our ideas and our preferences out of the way, Lord. And that we would surrender completely to who you are. That we would have your name as the desire of our souls. They would have your kingdom as the topic that we want want to discuss and that your will would be what we are trying to accomplish through you on this earth more than anything lord i want to be children of the almighty who are used for your glory in jesus name i pray amen